Good morning, and happy Reformation Sunday. Those who are in Sunday school know it was Reformation Sunday, but did the rest of you? October the 31st is the day of the Reformation. No coincidence that it's on Halloween, and uh, we spent some time this morning talking about the English Reformation from after the time of Luther to uh, why it is in this church as we work through the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, why the year 1689 is important, why the city of London is important, and what the word Baptist means. That's all recorded. You can go there and listen. Uh, and I have to say, I do love kind of freestyle history stuff. Um, and I hope that it's contagious in the sense that I hope history isn't just a bunch of names and dates to you people. I hope you can see that history is the story of God working through his church. And my goal when I talk about history and why I'm kind of contagious about history uh, is because I think it's a great source of encouragement and of courage for those of us in this room, for all Christians. Uh, understanding the way God has worked against impossible odds, the way he loves to stack the deck against himself and then come through, uh, is a great encouragement and a great uh, emboldening thing as we face perilous things in our own time. So we can be thankful for the way God has worked in and through uh, people in church history. We're going to look this morning at Matthew 13, carrying on in our Matthew series at the parable of the sower, which many of you are aware of. It's found in the first 23 verses of Matthew 13, so I'd ask you to turn there. And then out of reverence, we will all stand as we read God's word. And these are the infallible and inspired and perfect words of God himself. That same day, Jesus went out from the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your ears, for they see, your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many, righteous, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. 
As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. And may God bless the reading of his word. So as we've been plodding along in this gospel, we've seen from the early days, the early chapters, Jesus has gone from obscurity to now, in the most recent chapters, he's been involved in a ministry of controversy, public controversy, very visible controversy. And many of us, if we've grown up in Christian circles at all, know that Jesus frequently speaks in parables. But have you ever considered when he starts speaking in parables? Have you noticed he hasn't done it until now? Has anyone noticed that? <laughs> right? We all think, oh yeah, Jesus taught in parables, Jesus taught in parables. Right. When did it start? And why? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Today Jesus is going to start speaking in parables, and he's going to keep speaking in parables until the end of his life. If you keep going in chapter 13, in verse 34 and 35, it says, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter what has been hidden since before the foundation of the world. Okay? This is an intentional decision on Jesus' part and in prophetic fulfillment of the Old Testament that he now starts to speak in parables. This was not uniform across his ministry, and he explains why he does it. We are moving into another significant chapter of the ministry of Jesus Christ, and his friction with the Pharisees has pushed things into this new chapter of his preaching. And so this first parable of the sower is going to show us a number of things. In verses 1 through 9, we read that in that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Many of us are familiar with this parable and with the four types of soil. And we're also familiar with the word parable, but what is a parable? I think frequently we think, and this is partially true, we think of a parable as kind of an illustration, and we all know uh, that illustrations help to internalize certain truths of the gospel, right? If it's told in story form, we remember it better. And that is true, but it's only true for some. It's not true for everybody, as we see here. Okay, so this is not just an illustration, okay, like preachers use today. A parable is a form of illustration, but it's more. And the word literally means to throw alongside. The word para means alongside, right? Paralegal is someone who works alongside a lawyer. And baleo is to throw. Okay, so Jesus is literally throwing something alongside his teaching. So a parable is an analogy that frequently picks up on imagery 
And Jesus often picks up imagery from the Old Testament and then reworks it and reshapes it into his setting to explain what the prophets were looking at. So the parables of Jesus operate also, in this sense, as prophetic statements. He's telling a story, not just in the abstract, but he's telling a story about what's happening right in front of his eyes. He's telling a story about these people in front of him. So the listeners to his story are actually the subject of his story. And I think this is something that we frequently miss. And I think today, in evangelical preaching, we frankly don't spend enough time considering what it's like to be in the world of the Bible. In my opinion, far too much evangelical preaching goes straight from the text to application, and we've never really understood the world of the Bible. We've never understood what it actually means. We just rush to application. Okay? Give me five smooth stones of financial husbandry for my farm, right? Well, that's not the point. Okay? We have to understand the world of the Bible, and then we make application. We don't want to treat the Bible like Aesop's fables for Christians, and we don't want to overcorrect against that and have uh, preaching and and sermons and and teaching that's just parsing Greek and Hebrew uh, language and sentence structure and never make application either. This also is not an academic lecture. It's getting into the story that God is telling in his creation. What we want to do is understand what the text is saying, to understand the big story so you understand the story you're in and you can make application from the Word of God naturally. And I do think once we understand the big story, it does become much easier to make application in your own life. You understand your own setting that much better. And so here, when Jesus starts preaching in parables, his first parable is a parable about parables. Do you catch that? This is a parable about parables. He's telling us how parables work with a parable. Okay? So in the very telling of it, He's making the application. The application is happening as he's telling it. So the parable is producing the outcome of which it speaks. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Do you see that? Okay. The, the, the parable isn't just saying something. It's doing something in real time with the people who are hearing it. And by talking about the different types of soil that the seed is falling upon, Christ is actually creating those exact conditions. You see that? Jesus is spreading the seed of his word out to these people. And as they receive it various ways, they are discovering what kind of soil they are. So Jesus is doing something with the parable. He's not just teaching something with it. It's doing something. He's not merely explaining how we receive the word. He is creating the conditions for those with spiritual ears to receive his word. And for those without spiritual ears to be hardened even further. And of course, those of us who can read the whole chapter have the advantage of having the explanation of the parable which his original hearers would not have immediately had. For them, all they know is that there's lots of tension between the Pharisees and Jesus and that there's been an exorcism or two or three performed and that Christ has shown, now most recently, that his real family is those who are united to him in the gospel. So this isn't just about genetic or ethnic lineage. This is about being grafted in and unified through the gospel. And then now Jesus gets on a boat and starts talking about farming. What? Okay, you did all this and now you're on a boat and you're telling us how to farm? This, I don't understand this guy, right? And Jesus says, yeah, exactly, you don't understand, okay? So before explaining what the parable means, which he does explain, Jesus is going to explain what he's doing by telling the parable. He's going to explain what parables do and then he's going to explain what the parable means, In verses 10 through 17, then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? 
And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. We sometimes talk about the hard sayings of Jesus, and there's two kinds of hard sayings of Jesus. There's some sayings which are hard in sense of what is he saying here. They're hard to understand. But then there's other teachings like this one that are not hard to understand, but they're hard to accept, okay? Because it comes with a serrated edge. It hurts. It stings. That's why it's hard. Not long ago in Sunday school, we talked about Jesus' sermon in John chapter 6. And Jesus, in that sermon, is preaching in the clearest possible way about the sovereignty of God in salvation, how he gives mercy to some and others are passed by in their hardness. That's a hard saying. And after Jesus gives it, many people walk away. And Jesus doesn't seem bothered by that because after that, after half the crowd or two-thirds or three-quarters of the crowd leaves, Jesus turns to the 12 and says, okay, do you want to go too? Okay, because if this is getting too hard for you guys, you are free to leave. Just like Gideon's army. I would rather have a small band of the truly committed than a bunch of cowards that are going to spoil the whole army. Okay? If you don't like what I'm preaching, now's your opportunity to get out of here. Leave. Okay? We don't need cowards in our army, because then the whole army is going to turn into water. Okay? We want the truly committed. We want those who are on mission with us. And so thinning the crowd out does not bother Jesus at all. And it is just like some of the stories we hear in the Old Testament where God thins out the army. He stacks the, decks to, he stacks the deck against himself before he delivers. He makes things harder on himself and on his people to show that salvation does truly come from the Lord and not from the might of our own hands. And now Jesus is here drawing a dividing line with parables. And he says some people, and again, if we make an application here, some people, especially in more theologically liberal circles in our day, love to separate Jesus and Paul. Who's ever heard that? Okay. Theologically liberal people, they love to separate Jesus and Paul, right? Jesus had the pure message of Christianity, and then Paul and the apostles corrupted it, right? From Jesus, we just get unicorns and glitter and rainbows and fluffy fairies, and then Paul does all this doctrinal stuff, which is kind of mean, and we shouldn't have that. Okay? Jesus is preaching hard doctrine here. Okay? Don't think that the only person who talks tough is Paul in Romans or in Ephesians. Jesus is talking about hell and about election. Okay? Two of the hardest things to receive come from the mouth of Jesus. And we don't have Jesus sheepishly going about this idea, but he's just boldly preaching it. There's nothing to be ashamed of here. Jesus has already preached on hell, 
And I've mentioned this before, but isn't it interesting? If we do this gentle Jesus and, and Paul's like this angry Old Testament guy uh, again, and we, we divvy up God like that, we divide God. Isn't it interesting that almost everything we know about hell comes from Jesus Christ? Okay? You would have a hard time constructing a thorough doctrine of hell from the Old Testament. It mostly comes from the mouth of Jesus. And here he's talking about something equally difficult, which is the sovereignty of God and salvation. Jesus has intentionally gone out of his way to push the Pharisees and his controversy with them to the boiling point. And now he's thinning out a crowd with a hard sermon, a hard parable about the state of their hearts. And again, it's not just that this parable is explaining it, but this parable is creating the conditions by which everyone has an opportunity to look into their own heart and see what kind of soil am I? What's in here? And I want everyone in this room to be doing the same thing this morning. What's in here? What kind of soil is in here? How am I receiving the word of God? Christ tells his disciples that to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. And if that's not bad enough, Jesus also cuts against the uh, popular egalitarian notion of our day that everyone, everyone should win, right? Everything should kind of be the socialist uh, evening out of everything in our age. And Jesus says in verse 12, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken from him. And this is entirely consistent with the parable of the talents, where Jesus illustrates the justice of God not by making sure everything is even for everybody at the end. Right? When Jesus talks about justice in the parable of the talents, guess what happens? The guy who starts with five ends up with 11, and the guy who starts with one ends up at zero, and Jesus says that's how justice works in the kingdom of God. Jesus is not an egalitarian who wants to make sure everyone crosses the finish line at the same place. Okay? That's not how he's working. He's giving hard teaching here. And we have to get into this world to understand why would people hate Jesus so much? Okay? Why would they hate him so much that they kill him? A righteous man. And we have to understand our natural state or else this makes no sense it just sounds like cold, hard fatalism, which it absolutely is not. But we have to un- our nat- understand our natural state after the fall. We're all the hardened soil. We all reject. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all reject God. And so if some have been uh, realizing that they have ears to hear, it's not because they're smarter. It's not because they're more pious. Okay? It's not something they did. It's a gift from God to be able to hear with spiritual ears. All glory goes to God in our salvation. There's nothing we add. There's nothing we do to get ourselves saved. This is a gift from God. It's all gift. And that means all glory goes back to the Father of all glory. And so we have to keep in mind, if nobody ever heard the things of God, no injustice would be done anywhere in the universe. Okay? God doesn't have to go out of his way to strike people with blindness. We show up here with blindness because we're fallen sons and daughters of Adam. We show up here blind. We show up here deaf. We show up here with hardened hearts. That's how we get here. That's the default setting, and that's why Jesus' language here is noteworthy. Jesus says, to you it has been given. Okay? You all showed up deaf and blind, but to you, I'm giving you a gift. I'm giving you ears to hear. I'm giving you eyes to see the kingdom of God. It's gift. Okay? 
And I'm reminded of the, the hymn writer, right? Nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. This is gift from start to finish. You added nothing to your salvation except the sin for which you need to be forgiven. And we have to understand that this is the default setting of man after the fall, to be spiritually blind and to be spiritually deaf. By nature, we're all the kind of soil that does not receive the word of God at all. But now, to many, it is being given entirely by grace. And some have pointed out, and I actually agree with this, for some, there's actually even a gracious gift in the fact that Jesus is concealing the truth in a parable. Okay? Uh, in one commentary I read, this is actually a gift of grace because if he had just preached it outright and they understood, that would have intensified their future judgment. It's actually a gift from God that they can't even understand because it means they are less accountable than if he had just said it. And then Jesus quotes the prophet. Why don't you go to Isaiah chapter 6? That's where Jesus is quoting from. It's a very well-known passage. And I won't read all of it again. But I want to provide the context. King Uzziah has been reigning in Israel for 50-some years, longer than Queen Elizabeth was our monarch. People died and were born and died again while this king was reigning. This is all these people knew. And now he's dead. And the world is changing for everybody. And God calls his prophet. And this is what he says. This is before, this is the preamble to the quote Jesus gave. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Who are you, Isaiah? Listen up. Because I've got a mission for you. You better know who I am before you go, and you better know who you are before you go. Because this is going to be really tough. So let this burn in your memory what I'm about to tell you. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. God, make it stop. I can't bear your glory. Make it stop, please. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And frankly, it's terrible. It's terrible. I'm undone. I am having a complete psychological breakdown because I'm seeing the glory of the Lord. Please make it stop. Please make it stop. How different is this from the chatty conversations people claim to have with Jesus today? as though this is casual, throwaway thing. People in the Bible, when they encounter the holiness of God, the true saints with a true encounter of God want it to stop, please, now. I cannot bear it. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go 
and say to the people, and then we have the quote that Jesus gave, go preach Isaiah, go do it, because I'm holy, and you're not, and your sins are forgiven, so you can do this with a clear conscience. You have the courage of a man with a clear conscience. My angel just burned your tongue so that you're clean. And now you need to go. And guess what? No one's going to listen to you. No one's going to care. And it's going to be very frustrating because you just saw this refulgent glory of me in the temple. And you can't make that contagious enough. These people will not listen to you. Now go. On your way. Okay? That's where Jesus is picking himself up in the story. He sees the glory of God. He sees the majesty. He sees the grace of God. And these people don't care. They don't care. They just want to keep living their lives, their little lives that come from nowhere and are going nowhere, and they want to do nothing worthwhile in between. How frustrating must that be? How frustrating must that have been to be Isaiah? And how frustrating, from a human standpoint, must that have been to Christ? To come to his people who have been entrusted with his word for hundreds of years, and they don't care. Isaiah is told later in his vision that there will be a small remnant, but then the cities will be laid waste. And in the case of Jesus' ministry, where we are on the timeline here, we're less than a generation away from Jerusalem being utterly destroyed by the Romans for the exact same reason. They don't listen. They don't listen. They won't repent. They will not turn their hearts Destruction is on its way very, very shortly. And besides, Jewish people living in the times of Jesus, don't you remember what the Assyrians did to you? Don't you remember what the Babylonians did to you? Don't you remember what the Medo-Persians did to you? I'm going to have to make the Romans do it to you again because you people do not listen. And North American Christians, how much does it have to hurt? (laughs) How many times do we have to hear, you guys aren't listening? (laughs) How often do we need to hear that? How much needless misery do we have to go through, humanly speaking, for us to get it? In verse 11, Jesus uses the word secrets or mysteries of the kingdom. And I think this serves as an allusion to very similar prophetic language. Also, when Old Testament Israel is in the midst of falling to these mighty empires that God has sent as an arm of judgment for their unbelief. The language in Daniel 2. When King Nebuchadnezzar sees a statue with a head of gold, a chest of silver, thighs of bronze, and then feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Daniel later reveals, so he gives this clouded image. Notice how this is, is patterned on here. No one understands it, and then he explains. Here's what it means. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. You're the Babylonian Empire. And after you, a lesser empire is going to come, the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks are going to come. And then finally, this mixed republic slash empire of the Romans is going to come. And this is the vantage point from which Jesus is speaking in history. It's in the time of the Romans. And this empire is made up of many parts that are going to fall apart. In Daniel 2, verse 35... You can follow along if you're there. Daniel 2.35, otherwise I'll read it. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. 
and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, of whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of heavens, making you rule over them all. I'm speaking to the mightiest man in the world, and I'm letting him know that everything he has is by the hand of God. It's by the good pleasure of God. Okay? Yes, you're a head of gold, but guess who made you a head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar? God did. And you will rule exactly the boundaries and for exactly the time that God has made for you. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it. Just as you saw, iron mixed with the soft clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix together in marriage, but they will not hold together. Just as iron does not mix with clay, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed." nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation sure. Now this rock that is about to smash in this cryptic statue image, is here. Jesus Christ is the stone of offense. Jesus Christ is the rock of stumbling. The old age of these old empires is over, and the kingdom of Christ is forming up in the time of Jesus. Christ is announcing that the seed of his word is the foundation of this new world reality, and it is going to be received differently by different people, just like it was in the time of Isaiah and Daniel. Jesus ends this portion with a blessing on the eyes that see and on the ears that hear because they are living in the days that these prophets saw from afar. Right? Isaiah and Daniel wished they could have seen these things. They saw them from hundreds of years in advance. They wished they would have seen it and they didn't. And now these people get to see this all happening in real time, in real world history. And many of them don't catch on. The kingdom parables later in this chapter and in this book are going to give a bigger and bigger picture of what's happening in human history. Okay? It's important to understand that. The parables are prophetic statements about where history is at. And we need to understand that so we can make proper application into our own hearts and in our own lives. But we do see that the ministry of Jesus Christ is a hinge and a turning point in history and a dividing line that every man, woman, and child must reckon with. There's a new age dawning when the sower gets to work. There's a new year started on the agricultural calendar. And these principles clearly remain. 
Jesus paints a picture of many ways to avoid the kingdom and only one way to get in. And that is always the case. Okay? There's many ways to avoid the kingdom. There is one way in to the kingdom and one only. In verse 18, Jesus says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitful niches of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So the first type of soil is the walking path, where the soil never gets worked up. It's just hard. Okay? We have a path to our silage bales on our field, and I haven't tilled it up ever. It's very hard. Okay? And if I scatter seed on it, nothing would happen, because I've been driving on it for ten years, and it's hard. It's rock hard. Nothing's going to happen. Jesus is saying these are the people who don't understand him. Okay? They're hardened to him. And the word of the kingdom bounces off these people without seemingly making any difference whatsoever. They just don't care. They're happy living their nothing life, going nowhere. And they will, in fact, find out they are going somewhere. But these people don't care. They're indifferent. The second type of soil is rocky ground with a thin layer of soil. And because the soil is shallow, the seed springs to action quickly, but then falls away just as quickly under pressure. And so this is not a picture, I don't think, of a justified person who ends up losing their justification. Rather, this is a false professor who decides, as soon as it gets tough, that playing the game isn't really worth the trouble. It's starting to get difficult. Christianity didn't work out for me. I'm going to go my own way. didn't work. I tried it. Okay? If you hear someone who tried Christianity and walked away, they didn't try Christianity. This much we know. Okay? And the reason we know that this isn't a true convert isn't because our theological system dictates that this can't be. Look at what Jesus himself says in verse 21. The root of the matter is not in this person. There's no root there. Okay? It, it looked good on the surface. It quickly sprang to life, but there is no root. This is shallow stuff. Okay? This is what Paul calls zeal without knowledge. And we probably all know people like that, right? The, oh yeah, Christianity, it's new, it's exciting, it's sparkly, it's, you know, there's a smoke machine, there's laser, there's a pastor in skinny jeans, oh, you know, I'll try it, yeah, I'll try it. And it doesn't work out, and they drop away. Was the root of the matter ever there? Jesus says no. The root of the matter was never there. It was just unguided zeal, okay? And they could have gotten just as excited about something else as they did about Christianity, the root of the matter is not in this person. Therefore, when it gets tough, they check out. The third type of soil is infested with weeds that choke out any potential growth. And Jesus says that this is the one who is caught up with the cares of the world and the deceit of riches. And so this seed never gets going in that environment. This year I planted a bunch of new alfalfa. And we never got rain and we never got rain and we never got rain. And if you've ever grown alfalfa, you know you just lightly put the seed on top of the soil very small seeds. 
So it has to touch the surface of the soil. And it never got going because we never got a rain. And it's not deep enough in the soil to start with that moisture. But guess what does grow without any rain? Sow thistle, Russian thistle, Canadian thistle, <laughs> lamb's quarter, smartweed, flixweed, okay, kosher. It all grows without any help. That's this guy. Okay? The weeds have taken over before this ever gets a chance to get going. It's almost the photonegative. Remember, we talked about the empty house, right? And the, and the way to crowd sin out is to nurture holiness inside so that it pushes the sin out. This is the exact opposite. The sin has crowded. The sin has taken over. And there's no room for the seed of the gospel to germinate. The cares and concerns of worldly things is there. There's not room in this person's heart for the gospel to gain traction. And then we have the last type of soil, and this is the soil that everyone here should want to be, that we can be by the grace of God. We've seen that it is the work of God for soil to be receptive and productive. It's his hammer and chisel and plow that work this ground up to make it ready. And this soil receives the word of God gladly, and it takes root. It actually comes to life. And so, if this has happened in your heart, you should not be proud of yourself for being smarter than your friend. You should not brag that you're more pious and more naturally holy. Well, I'm just inclined to greater holiness. I don't know what his problem is. I'm, I'm just by nature a very holy person. Okay? That's not the way to deal with this. Okay? If this holiness has taken root in your heart, thank the gardener for working that soil up. Okay? For preparing it, for making it ready to receive this word. Don't be proud of yourself for a decision you made or some moral actions that you took. Thank God for those things, okay? Because those things themselves are the fruit of a prior change that God has wrought in your heart. And why is there a variance in the harvest? Why is there some that yields 30, some that yields 60, and some that yields 100? Does this mean that some people are more born again than others? And the answer to that is absolutely not. Okay, there's not degrees of being born again. There's two columns of humanity. Those in Adam, destined for the lake of fire, and those in Christ, destined for the new heavens and the new earth that Tim read about this morning. Okay, there's not somewhere in between. You belong to your father, the devil, or you belong to your father, God. And everyone in this room belongs decisively in one of those categories. There's not somewhere in the middle. You're headed somewhere. You belong to one family, the family of Adam or the family of Christ. However, inside each group, we do, in fact, see degrees. And I think this is a picture of our sanctification or our fruitfulness, which is just simply the outworking of the new nature, the, the outworking of the rebirth. And this is a task that we are deeply involved in. So the rebirth is entirely a gift from God. If God has tilled up the soil and planted the seed, that is a work of him. But then, as things get going, we are, he does involve us in the work that he is doing. And if that seems like a bit of a paradox, it, it, it oughtn't to be. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 talks about this way, right? There's a command. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? What's the reason? What's the reason you need to work? What's the reason you need to work? The logic is, for God <laughs> has done this to work and to will for his good pleasure. Okay? You need to get to work. Why? Well, because God already worked in you. 
Okay? God worked the salvation in, now you need to work it out. Okay? You're not working for your salvation, you're working out your salvation. Okay? You're now living by grace. You're bearing fruit in your life. You're killing sin. You're growing in grace. This is sanctification. This is fruitfulness. Okay? So there's no contradiction in Paul saying in Philippians, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to work and to will for his good pleasure. And so if we are truly born again, if the root of the matter is in us, if the, the seed of God's word has taken root in your heart, you are empowered by him. And if you are truly empowered by him, we need to take our task seriously. No true Christian wants to think just in terms of the bare minimum. Okay? We want to think in terms of fruitfulness, sending treasure on ahead. Okay? Maximum joy, maximum peace with God, maximum fruitfulness, maximum treasure in heaven, maximum joy. That's how we ought to think with renewed minds. And so because the Spirit has breathed this new life into us, we now want to think in terms of turning a maximum profit on it. Okay? We want to turn a hundredfold rather than twentyfold also by the grace of God. And so how do we make application of this? Okay? If you've been in church or in Christian circles for any amount of time, you probably can think of very specific people that you might classify in all these four different types of soil. Okay? Probably all of us can naturally think of people in all four categories. And it's interesting how some people are angered by the very same offer of grace that the next one is softened to. We all know some people who love their sin more than they desire peace with God. Okay? Some want to think, well, you know what? Here's a cool deal. I get to have peace with God and I'm going to hang on to my sin. And Jesus is saying, that's not going to last. Okay? Someone's going to win. Okay? So I want to watch your fruit and I want to see who your real master is. You will not keep sin and Christ in your life. Someone's gonna, some plant is going to choke out another plant here. This will happen. Okay? So knock off the foolishness thinking you can have it all. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. Okay? You have Christ or you have weeds. And so as hard as the saying is in some ways, I also want to offer that it is amazing comfort in other ways. Knowing what the Bible says about the default setting of the human heart of man, we should all go out like Isaiah and expect no fruit. If it's left to a personal decision, if it's left to people's own you know, so-called free will that's actually under the bondage of sin, nothing's going to happen. Don't go out. Don't preach. You'll see nothing. Okay? It would be easy to get pessimistic if that's where it was left. But embedded in this parable and many others is the expectation that we can expect a harvest in due time. And not only that, but Jesus keeps telling parables, and the parables that are coming just around the bend always picture growth and expansion. Okay? He's filling us with optimism, not because human progress is inevitable, but because God's grace is pleased to get more manifest over time. So we can go out with optimism. We can go out expecting life to come up from soil. And one of the things that he tells us here is that even though the work is often difficult and sometimes discouraging, we can never give in to the discouragement. We always work with hopeful expectation. Okay? Because again, if it was left to the hardness of the human heart, do you think Saul of Tarsus would ever convert it? I can't imagine he would have. Okay? If the gardener is sovereign over the, the heart of Saul of Tarsus or of King Nebuchadnezzar, can conversion happen? Yes, it can. <laughs> Okay? This is the actual the gateway to life. This is why we can work in hard situations, not in spite of God's sovereignty of salvation, but because of it. You see the difference? 
Okay? We work because God is sovereign in salvation. Not in spite of it. This is actually what fuels it. God will give life. Get going. Get going. This is exactly the theology we talked about this morning during the time of the Reformation. This is it. This is it. The sovereignty of God and salvation. This is what sent missionaries across the globe. There's people in China. Let's get to them. Let's get to it. There's people in India. Let's go. Okay? God's doing something. God is sovereign in salvation. Let's get to work. And this is, in fact, a promise that Isaiah also saw from afar. In Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And you know what? For as many people as turned away from Jesus' ministry, his preaching, our preaching today, is just as much at work in the people who walk away as it is in the people who come to him. It's always doing something. It's a dividing line. If that person says, yep, yeah, I'm confronted with this, I will admit to myself, I am indifferent to the things of God. Guess what? The preaching accomplished something. <laughs> it did. Okay? It ripped off the pretense that you can be a carnal Christian. It ripped off the pretense that you're a Christian because your parents are. It's ripping off the pretense. It's doing something. Okay? God is just as much at work in condemning sinners as he is in saving them in terms of the preaching that happens and confronting people with just a stark reality. You're on this side of the line or you're on this side. Okay? And we trust that for those who are hardened, they will be softened in due time. But God's word is always doing something. It's always doing something. Even when people aren't converting, God's word is at work. Preaching is always accomplishing something. Even this morning. So the question we all need to ask ourselves, each one personally here, and this again is for us, not for your neighbor, not for someone you care about. What type of soil are you this morning? Are you too hard and trampled to even care? Are you too shallow in your theology or in your Bible reading or in your spiritual disciplines or your prayer life? Are you too shallow to care? Say, so, yeah, it's true, but is that you? Are you too consumed with sin? For these seeds to germinate in your life? Are you nurturing weeds? Are you a farmer of weeds? Is that you? Or are you happy to receive the word of God and start turning a profit on it? Are you not happy this morning with the state of your garden? And if you're not, and none of us have arrived, so all of us can find room to be more fruitful. So if none of us are fully satisfied with the state of our garden, then call out to God and ask for more mercy and he will give it. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God will give his grace. If he has started, he is sure to complete it. Okay? Call out to the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. That's not for a curvet. That's for this. God will give you the desires of your heart. If you want to live for his glory, he enables you to live for his glory. He will give it. Okay? He turns his face on no one who comes with a repentant, soft heart. If you want this, it's yours. Open your hand and let God put it in there. Let him put the seed in the soil of your heart. And then all of us, as we preach, as we evangelize, as we think, as we share our faith with our neighbors, do you have the courage to preach the way Christ preaches? Think about that. Do we? Do we pull the punch? Do we have the confidence, like Jesus, to lay it all out? To preach with a razor's edge 
so that the hardened are confirmed in their hardness and forced to face it, forced to confront it, forced to see it, and also so that the born again can clearly know that a new life has started in them. They're clearly on the other side of this razor's edge, okay? that they can walk in eternal life, and not just that, but also in the assurance of eternal life. And preaching and evangelizing the way that Christ himself does demonstrates our power and our confidence that the power is not in us, it is in the word. Okay, and this is so important. The power is in the word itself. The power is in the proclamation of the gospel. It's not in methods. It's not in ministries. It's not in human eloquence. Okay, it's not in how attractive and a beautiful young thing you are. The power is in the word of God. The power is in the proclamation of the gospel. That's where the power is. So you just put it out there, and it will do its work. It will break stony hearts. It will. Or it will harden them. Okay? But the power is in the gospel. So don't resort to techniques and all kinds of other uh, tricks. The power is in the gospel proclamation itself. And this Reformation Sunday is as good a time as any to be reminded of this. God has not put his power in programs. God has not put his power in techniques. He has not put his power in messengers. He has put it in his word. Do you trust that? Do you trust that? This is the power of God. This is where God has put his power and nowhere else. In this word, in this gospel, Christ has presented himself. And this gospel will do its work. We don't see where and when God is preparing the soil. That happens below the radar. We can't see how God is preparing another person's heart. We just go out and scatter seeds. Okay? And when we do it, we know that he is working. Sometimes slowly, often quietly, but God is at work. So you just scatter the seeds promiscuously, freely, liberally. Get it out as much as you can. God's working. We don't need smoke. We don't need lasers. We don't need cool pastors. We don't need a strong social media game. We need confidence in the word of God to do its work. And if Christ himself felt no need to add or to take from this message or to hold back on the hard parts, why should we? Let's pray. Lord, thank you You are the sovereign one. You are the king. You are the king of the kings. Lord, you hold in your hand the hearts of rulers and of kingdoms and of nations and in each one in this room. Lord, and you have promised that you will work and you have given us a task. You have called us to be promiscuous as we share your word, as we share your gospel. Lord, and you have shown us so clearly that you are the one preparing the soil. We can't do that. The seed will land where it lands. And we need to be faithful. And I pray that each one in this room would be faithful. And I pray that you would be preparing the soil. And Lord, if there are people in this church this morning that need a change of heart, Lord, then I pray that they would call out and that you would do it right now. Lord, we know that you can. We know that you do. We know that you will. You will turn none away who come to you. Lord, we know that that is a promise in your word. And so I pray that your spirit would be at work, softening the soil, breathing life into these seeds. Lord, and then give us as a church an unshakable, 
a rock-ribbed confidence that there are no means other than what you have given us, which is your word and your word alone. Lord, help us to rest. Help us to work in joy. Help us to work in anticipation. And I pray that you would bring many sons and daughters to glory through the ministry of this church and these people. And amen. Please stand as we sing.
receive the charge. The parables of Christ not only illustrate but perform. They are a prophetic comment on the state of affairs and this parable of the sower actively brings about the very things of which it speaks. Parables make the truth memorable for those with spiritual ears and they harden and confuse and conceal for those who remain in their sin. Parables sort the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, and this is exactly what Christ says they are meant to do. The preaching of the gospel sorts people out as it is designed to do. Because God is sovereign in salvation, we can share the gospel with great joy and anticipation. The hardest soil you know today may be worked over and gladly receive the word tomorrow. For those of us in whom the gospel has already taken root, we have the joy and the privilege of tending to that life, of taking our part in an abundant harvest, worshiping with the Lord's people on the Lord's day, spending time in the word and in prayer, pushing out the weeds of sin and indifference with a healthy crop are all things that are not mere duties to be performed out of obligation, but are productive work that yield greater profit, greater peace, and greater joy. And receive the benediction with believing hearts from Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and amen.